You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All right. Um, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, the last two weeks, of course, our focus has been on the, uh, the Passion Week of Christ. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter service last week. This morning we are returning to our current study in the book of First Peter. And uh, we have come this morning to perhaps uh, one of the most difficult portions in all of Scripture in the New Testament to interpret, to understand, and to teach. In case you think I'm just kind of exaggerating, Martin Luther said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in all the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. That's Martin Luther. So what's Jeff Steffel going to do, huh? (laughs) Right? The same sentiment is held by modern scholars and pastors and teachers. Nonetheless, we are going to dive in this morning. We're up for the challenge. And, uh, but with a disclaimer, I'm not going to go into all the views uh, that this passage has. There's three basic ones. I'm not going to present all those. I'm going to focus on the one I think is the clearest and the, the best interpretation, the most accurate. Now, whenever you come to kind of a, one of these places in Scripture where it's like, what is he saying here? You, it, one of the things you got to do is um, you have to kind of back up a little bit and you go, okay, what's the theme of this letter? Because every letter has several themes and one main theme in it. And then you also have to back up just a few verses and look at the context. What are the verses around this? You see this so often in teaching, I'm sorry, in Christian circles and on Christian TV. A guy will take a verse totally out of context. It's just unbelievable to me how, I would say 50% of the time that I turn on TV or watch something, it's like, no, that's not what that's saying. Look at the verse before and the verse after, right? So context is important. And then theme, the theme of of the entire letter is important. So let's look at the theme again. Let's recall it. We've talked about this. Remember what Peter is doing in this letter. He's writing to several churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And these churches, the believers in these churches are suffering for their loyalty to Christ. Um, They're being marginalized, the persecution is starting, and it's only going to get worse. And history tells us, unfortunately, it got very, very bad for these folks under the Roman emperors. And so Peter's letter is to encourage them that God has a purpose in all of this and that he's working out his will in all this and just stay faithful to him. But he also wrote, knowing, I think, in a sense, that there was more that was to come. He needed to get these folks ready for it. And so that's the theme of the book. And it's not the only theme, of course, but it's the main theme. Now, the second thing is context. And the context really for our verses, um, chapter 3, 18 through 22, begin back up in 14. In fact, let's slide back up to verse 13. Who is going to harm you? And I'm reading from the New International Version if you are eager to do good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, unjust suffering, you are blessed. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. He's talking about unjust suffering for the cause of Christ. And then Peter gives the ultimate example of unjust suffering. And that example is of Jesus Christ, who through his unique unjust suffering provided a way for us to be saved. Peter is saying, Often God accomplishes his plans through ways that we do not understand, and certainly we see that in the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. And why does Peter take his readers back to the gospel? Well, for this reason. Because the willingness to endure suffering for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer for our sake. Let me say that again. The willingness to endure suffering for the sake of the cause of Christ is grounded in our wonder and our amazement of Christ's willingness to suffer for our sake. 
to make it through the Christian life and to please God, and at the end, hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you have to learn to be mesmerized with the cross, to be amazed by the cross, and go back to that over and over and over again. We call that preaching the gospel to yourself. And here it is, beginning in verse 18. He's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. Verse 18, 4, connected back to the previous verse, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. See what I mean? <laughs> do you see what I mean? All right, so here's what we're going to do. What I see here are in, this, in, the, in these verses, there's a message, there's an encouragement that he's giving to these believers, and we're going to get to that. But it's done within the framework of, of the presentation of the gospel. And you see five elements of the gospel right here within these verses. Five elements. First, there's substitutionary suffering. He says, Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Then you see the death of Christ. He was put to death in the body, verse 18. Then you see the resurrection of Christ. He was made alive in or by the Spirit. Then you see this proclamation. He went and proclaimed something concerning that resurrection. And then ultimately, he ascends to heaven. He has gone into heaven. That speaks of the ascension. So you see these five elements of the gospel. Now, this is the third time in the letter that Peter is directing these folks back to consider the gospel again. In chapter 1, you'll remember, verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. Verse 21, for through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So you see the ascension, you see the resurrection, and you see the death of Christ on our behalf in those verses. There's the gospel. He does the same thing in chapter 2, a well-known passage, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. There's the gospel again. Now, in chapter 3, Peter does the same thing here in verse 18. But he adds a different emphasis in verse 19. See, in the first two gospel presentations, in the first two uh, moment, uh, parts of the letter where he directs the attention of these believers back to the gospel, the emphasis is on the work of Christ to redeem us to redeem sinners. Whereas in this third passage, the emphasis of the work of Christ is about conquering non-human spiritual beings called imprisoned spirits. So the first two, it's about redeeming sinners. The last one here is about conquering spiritual or evil powers. It's a victorious proclamation. Verse 19 says again, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, I read that and I've got all kinds of questions. I don't know about you. There are several that we need to answer about this proclamation that Jesus made. And I think the best way to do that is kind of just in the order that they are presented to us. So first of all, when did Christ make this proclamation? Well, he made it after being made alive, verse 19 says, but before he ascended to God's right hand with all spiritual powers in submission to him, verse 22. So he made it in between his resurrection and ascension. There was a proclamation that Jesus actually made in an actual place to actual beings between his resurrection and his ascension. We don't know exactly when that was. It could have been Right after his resurrection and before he appeared to Mary Magdalene, who was the first that he appeared to. It could have been later on before 
He appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus or before he appeared to the disciples first that night in a closed room. We don't know for sure. It could have been right before he ascended, Acts 1.8, when he was finally taken up by them. It could have been right during that period of time. We don't know. But we know for sure it was between his resurrection and his ascension. Second of all, what was that proclamation that he made? Well, it was a proclamation of victory. However, because the King James uses the word preached, all other translations use the word proclaimed, but because the King James used the word preached, some people have assumed that this proclamation was Jesus preaching the gospel to all the Old Testament souls, the souls who believed in the Old Testament, that he, after his resurrection, went and preached to them, apparently, what they think is the gospel. Or that Jesus went to preach to the souls of those in hell who had rejected the preaching of Noah while he was building the ark those 120 years. Now, both of those do not hold water at all. First, these spirits are imprisoned, right? And when you're in prison, you've done something. Okay, so they can't be Old Testament believers. They did something right. They believed in the promise of the Messiah to come. Secondly, these spirits couldn't be rejectors of Noah's preaching because Scripture teaches us you don't get a second chance to believe the gospel after death. Uh, uh, Hebrews says it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes another chance to believe. No, the judgment. Okay, so you see that. I'm glad. You're here. You're with me. Are you excited? All right. In addition, the Greek word translated proclamation is not the usual word for preach. Euangelizo is the normal word, Greek word for preach. That's where we get evangelized from. It kind of sounds familiar, right? Instead, it's the word keruso, which meant to proclaim. Now, it was used for proclaiming the gospel, but it was also used for proclaiming other things, and that's the case here. The word keruso that's used here, keruso, in the ancient world was used of heralds who would announce um, the homecoming of a king coming into his hometown, city, after he had conquered some foreign power, or to announce military victory or conquest as the king entered the conquered town. And that's the way it's used here, that second way. This is an announcement of conquest. So it's not saying Jesus went to preach the gospel, but rather he went to proclaim his victory over spiritual beings who were the enemy of God. Paul mentions this proclamation over in Colossians 2. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. All right, so this proclamation was a proclamation of victory made between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, so the next question is, to whom was it made? We have two clues here. Uh, it was made to, number one, spirits in prison. And, and number two, spirits in prison who disobeyed in Noah's day. First, the word spirits here is only used once of human spirits in all of the New Testament. The plural is only used once. It's over in Hebrews, and it's qualified there to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. So you have the word people, so you know it's human beings. Every other time spirits is used in the New Testament is always, always angels or demons. And furthermore, these spirits were disobedient, so it couldn't be holy angels. So we're narrowing it in here, aren't we? And secondly, these spirits in particular were disobedient in the days of Noah. And we read about this over in Genesis 6. Genesis 6. And here comes the wild part. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Genesis 6, 1, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. And they married any of them they chose. Now notice that the sons of God contrasted with the daughters of humans. So it's not sons of humans and daughters of humans. Sons of God 
which we'll get to in a second, and daughters of humans. And then if it was human and human, why would God say this next? My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. I'm going to give them, we'll find out, this means God said, I'm going to give them 120 more years of mercy to repent. I'm just 120. Verse 4, here it goes more. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the, the, the human race that I have created. Now, sons of God. In the Old Testament, that phrase is only used of angels. It is not used of mankind. In the New Testament, the opposite is true. We're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus, the Galatians Galatian says. But here, sons of God, Beni Ha'alim, Beni Ha'alim, refers only to angels. And it might help us to realize that the term angel is really a term of function, not necessarily identity. It has to do, angel means messenger, angelos, messenger. But that's not who these beings are, it's what they do. Fundamentally here, they're called what? Sons of God. You might think of angels then as um, God's heavenly family and redeemed human beings as God's earthly family. God has two families, if you will. Now, obviously, these are fallen sons of God or fallen angels who apparently left the bones that God established, married and mated with the daughters of men and produced an offspring that were called the Nephilim, a.k.a. the word means giants. In the Hebrew, heroes, men of renown. But angels are spirits. So how can they have physical, sexual relations if they are fundamentally spirits? Well, again, apparently it's possible. We have examples of that in Scripture. One is over in Genesis 19, when Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah had to protect two angels that were visiting him from the sexual lusts of the men of Sodom who surrounded Lot's house. If, if there wasn't some type of physical interaction possible, there would be no need to defend these, these angels. So the angels are able to assume a physical body and, and bodily function like humans. And certainly that was the case a chapter earlier in Genesis 18 when three of them who looked just like men appeared to Abraham. And they ate a meal with him that Abraham prepared. They ate a meal. These angels did. Now, Abraham, they would look just like human beings. Abraham had an inkling there was something special about them, and especially one who turned out to be the angel of the Lord, but that's another story. So all of this is kind of difficult for us to grasp because our worldview is not very supernatural. That's a product of the Western world. And we have relegated angels, and we don't do a lot of study on this, and, you know, the Bible has bits and pieces of this scattered throughout. It's not the main message of the Bible, but it is in there, and it does kind of help us to understand the why of a lot of things. Why there's a spiritual battle going on. Here we're getting a little insight into it right here. And so, you know, in the Western world, we've relegated um, angels to simply appearing as translucent beings with wings, or worse yet, babies with harps. By the way, there's only two angels, types of angels with wings, cherubim and seraphim. Other types of angels do not have wings. And they can and do manifest as human beings that are just ordinary looking. You wouldn't know them from anybody else. So ordinary. Scripture says in Hebrews, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For in doing so, some people have shown hospitality to what? Angels. So there's no wings on those visitors, are there? 
If there were wings, you would know. This is an angel, right? But you don't know, because that's what this says. Show hospitality, because you never know. It might be an angel, right? Now, apparently, this uh, sons of God and daughters of men hybrid offspring corrupted the human race. Certainly, morally, I'm going to insert, I believe, genetically. To the point where God, several hundred years later, imprisoned those fallen sons of God and destroyed humanity, had to clean the human race and started over with eight human beings. Now, why something so dramatic as that? Was it just the moral corruption or was there a genetic corruption too? We're not told. When I think of the flood, though, it leads me to believe that there was both. The corruption was so great that 120 years of Noah's preaching did not lead to one conversion. Just eight in Noah's family. 120, that, you know, I would think I would quit. <laughs> I'm done, God. I mean, I'm doing everything you want me to. I'm building this ark 500 miles from the nearest body of water. Now, that's giant faith, I'm telling you. That's giant faith. You know, that'd be like you starting a mountain climbing business in Port St. Lucie. <laughs> Where's the mountain? Oh, that bunch of trash out there on 95. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, year after year goes by, right? And nobody's believing. Nobody's responding. There is no results whatsoever. I'm telling you, that is gargantuan faith. Prior to this corruption that we see in Genesis 6, the Bible says it at the end of Genesis 4 that people called on the name of the Lord in those days. But you get to Genesis 6 and nobody's calling on the name of the Lord. Nobody's answering the call to call on the name of the Lord. Furthermore, this moral and I think genetic corruption produced very violent individuals. Look at what it says in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Now, this understanding of Genesis 6, which I just briefly communicated to you, was held by all Jewish people. From the, in the second temple period, which is from the time they came back from Babylonian captivity, rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple and so forth and so on, all the way to Peter's day. This is what they believed. This, was in, this is the understanding that is in all of their literature. And this was also the view held by the early church fathers up to about 400 A.D. And it also seems to be the view that's, concern, that's confirmed by the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of verses, Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And then over in 2 Peter chapter 2, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, this, notice the connection between the flood and this, this, this angelic thing here. Do not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, his family members. And the point at the end of all this is, if he did that, the Lord knows how to protect and rescue the godly in times of trial and crisis. Now, the question is, why did the sons of God do this? Why did these angelic beings do that? Well, the answer to that is actually part of a bigger, ongoing um, cosmic conflict between good and evil spiritual beings that first surfaces, as far as we could tell, when Satan enters the serpent to convince Adam and Eve in the garden to rebel against God. It wasn't about Adam and Eve. 
It was about powers of darkness and God. He convinced them to rebel, which Satan at that point perceived as a victory until God pronounced judgment on the serpent. And within that judgment, God announces a, um, a Messiah Redeemer would one day come. He calls him in the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, whose heel would be struck by the serpent but who would ultimately prevail by crushing the head of the serpent and thus undo the effect of the fall and return mankind to Eden. Once again, this seed of the woman, virgin-born seed of the woman, not seed of the man, which would normally be, no, of the woman, virgin-born man, is revealed in Galatians 3 as Jesus Christ. The bruised heel is the cross. The crushed head is the resurrection and ascension. And this is part of the subject of this passage. So from the point of Genesis 3 on, Satan sought. He knows one day his doom is in the seed. So what does he do? Everything he can to stop the seed, kill the seed, thwart the seed, whatever that takes. So in our passage, let's pollute the whole human race so not a true seed cannot come forth. It'd be a half-breed. We see it over in the story of King Xerxes' order to kill all the Jews in Esther's day. Esther 3 and 4. We see it in the attempt to destroy the Messianic line in the days of Joash, 2 Chronicles 22. We see it in Herod's attempt to kill all the baby boys, hoping to kill this one in particular that the wise men said was king of the Jews. Satan continued these efforts by tempting Jesus to abandon his mission in the desert. In Matthew 4, compelling Judas, Satan entered his heart to betray Jesus, inciting the mob to call for Jesus' death and to release a hardened criminal instead. So, you see this all the way through history, and there's a lot more, but, but after Jesus died then, all these malevolent spiritual powers in the world, and especially the imprisoned spirits, were celebrating. We won. The seed is done. The seed is dead. They celebrated that until the moment when that resurrected seed went to them and proclaimed his victory to them. <laughs> Following the resurrection. And this is what 1 Corinthians 2.8 says. It says, now, if the rulers of this age, these spiritual powers had understood it, that they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't see it. It was hidden in the text of the Old Testament, but just a little here and a little here, and they didn't put it together. They never saw it coming. Oh, the wisdom of God. Now, okay, so we've established what's going on here, at least tried to. Now the big question is, getting back to the text, why does Peter refer to the Noah's narrative here? Why does he, when he's trying to encourage these believers in Asia Minor who are suffering and under, going to undergo more, he's trying to strengthen them. Why does he go back to the Noah narrative? There are three reasons. The first one is because of the person of Noah. He was widely respected and recognized not only by Jews, but also by the Gentile people groups who lived in Asia Minor. Many of them had Noah and the flood in their people's history. It was a part of their history. Well, it should be, right? Because everybody came from those eight people. So if you had a history that went far enough back, it would go all the way back to Noah. So he was well known by all peoples. He was, he was very famous, Noah was. In fact, his enduring fame further, was further attested um, by a series of uh, Noah coins that archaeologists uncovered. And um, these coins were, were minted over the course of five Roman emperors in the second and third century. And on one side, you see Noah and his wife, and on the other side, you see the emperor. And each time the emperor changed, the coin changed. But this was in, you know, the, the, the second and third century A.D. So Noah's still a big deal. So big he's on a coin. That's like George Washington. 
or Abraham Lincoln, right? He's on a coin. So he, Noah was very well known. So he wasn't, you know, because sometimes people say, well, these Gentiles didn't know anything about Jewish history. They knew about Jonah. I mean, Noah. They knew about Noah. All right, secondly, because the days of Noah that Noah lived in were similar to what this church was beginning to experience. They were beginning to face this and recalling Noah's experience and God's faithfulness to Noah would be a great encouragement to these these believers in, in Asia Minor. Just like Noah and his family, these, these believers, and could I just pause and say, in a similar way, we believers today are starting to experience the marginalization of our faith in culture. We're starting to be a minority. We are no longer a majority. We are a minority. We're being more and more persecuted. I could give you dozens and dozens of examples of that that's going on right now in ways that are absolutely frightening. But we have nothing to fear. But if we did, it'd be frightening. The world's becoming, and our culture's becoming much, much more antagonistic. There's a semblance of the acceptance of religion, but underneath it, if you're a Bible-believing Believer, you are the enemy now. You are the enemy of the state. Uh-huh. And culture. Just like Noah, Peter exhorts them and us to be righteous, to remain righteous in the midst of all this unrighteousness. Swim upstream. Peter's been saying that in the whole letter. And just like Noah, Peter encourages them and us not to fear, but to be bold but respectful in our witness to the world around us, to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, to be patient with sinners because God was patient with us and wants none to perish but all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. But His patience is going to end. The Bible is very clear about this. There is a day and the flood came. There is a day and the second coming will be upon us. He'll come. He'll return. Jesus said that it'll be like in the days of Noah. People will just be minding their own business and boom, it's here. Just that fast, suddenly. But this time, the judgment will not come with, fu- with water. It's going to come with fire. 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements. The earth will melt in the heat. And just like Noah was saved by God and brought into a new world, Peter says to believers in Asia Minor, we too will experience salvation and be brought into a new world. Verse 13, but keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and only righteousness. All right, that's the second reason to be an encouragement. He uses the the, the Noah narrative to encourage these believers. But thirdly, because the flood... And the ark of Noah is a foreshadowing of the gospel, such a picture of the gospel that is in particular depicted in baptism. Now, look at, so far we've talked about the suffering, um, the resurrection, the death resurrection of Christ, the days of Noah, the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men, the offspring of that, the Nephilim, the giants, the men of renown. We've talked about, you know, the ark, the flood, Jesus preaching to these fallen sons in prison and all of that within three verses. Do we need any more, really? Peter says, yeah, let's throw in baptism too, right? You just need one more thing. I mean, what would this be without a few verses on baptism? I'm just being sarcastic. Sanctified sarcasm. Look at in verse, uh, speaking of the ark, Peter writes, last part of uh, chapter 3, verse 20, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven. Right? And is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to Him. Now, that's the ascension. So when Peter says baptism saves you, do you read that? It's like, wait a second, baptism doesn't save you. No, he's not saying that when you read a little bit closer. He's not saying that you can't be saved unless you are water baptized. 
Because immediately he goes on to say that what matters with baptism is not merely the external act, but the presence of an internal faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And the presence of that faith, he says, results in a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Let me just say that more simply, a pledge of loyalty to God, of pure-hearted loyalty to God. You know, when you're being water baptized, you know that's one thing that you're doing? You're saying, it's the pledge of allegiance to God. It's the pledge of allegiance to the gospel. I will be loyal to you. This is what you've done for me without me doing a thing. I was your enemy and you did it for me. Why we're enemies, Christ died for us. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I couldn't work for it. It was a free gift, but nonetheless, you called me. You opened my eyes. You let me see. I believed, and now I have this. And because, then because of the, the, the enormity of that gift and the, 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 the greatness of that grace, the amazingness of that mercy, I pledge my loyalty to you from this moment forward. Baptized. It's the wedding ring of Christianity. And I think, you know, in, our, in the Western world, we kind of really minimize baptism just because, well, we've been taught over and over. Here's what happened. For a long time, there was groups of people within Christianity, you're not saved unless you're baptized. And people said, no, 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 we're saved by the grace of God through faith, right? That's the message of the gospel. We can't do anything to be saved. We, getting under the water doesn't make you right with God. It's a sign that you have been made right with God. And so there's a big pushback against that. No, 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 no. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by, we're saved by grace and faith. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by baptism. Baptism isn't that important. Baptism isn't that important. It doesn't matter if you're baptized. It really doesn't matter if you're baptized. And see, we just kind of, it was an overreaction to the legalistic teaching that to be saved, you had to be baptized. And so it's, it's viewed as something that's kind of, you know, somewhat unimportant. But just as baptism doesn't save you, doesn't mean that it is not really, really, really important. And by the way, we're doing a baptism May 14th, Sunday morning. You can sign up. We do it about four times a year. The tank is right there. We all celebrate with you. But you've got to sign up online or on the Church Center app. I'm done with my announcement. Here's why it's so important. I just thought I'd stick that in there. It seemed to fit. All right, the death and resurrection. Hold in. Don't, don't stop now. Use all of your concentrating powers now. We're going to get to the end. This whole thing is going to get sewn up together, and you'll see it. The death and resurrection of Christ has achieved not only a, a victory over sin, death, and over the world, it's also achieved a victory over evil spirits. And this is a victory that Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and this victory will be fully enforced at his second coming. You know, we sang about that this morning. I'm fighting a battle that's already won. It's already won through the cross, right? And we're doing the mop-up job right now, but one day it'll be completely enforced at Christ's second coming. And until then, God has given us all the tools that we need to wage a good warfare in Jesus Christ. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from a place of victory. Does that make sense? Okay. And so this is the victory, really, Christ's victory, that we proclaim in, in baptism. In the flood, water was an instrument of both salvation and judgment. Notice the verse said that we're saved through the water. So the flood was an event that saved believing Noah, but condemned everybody who did not believe. Likewise, Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an event, was an event that saves those who believe in Christ but condemns those who do not. And whether we live with eternal salvation or drown in eternal judgment depends upon whether or not we are in the ark. The ark is a type of Jesus Christ. And so the thing is, are you in the ark? Have you believed? In the New Testament, it's worded a different way. Are you in Christ? All the way through the New Testament, you see this phrase over and over. Are you in Christ? Have you believed? Are you in Him? Are you, Old Testament typology, in the ark? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is what? 
He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So the term in Christ means that when you believe the gospel, you become so united with Jesus Christ that his substitutionary suffering, that his death, and that his resurrection become yours. It's as if they are yours. Over in Romans, Paul says, basically, when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he arose from the dead, you arose with him. You shared in his death and burial and resurrection. Well, in the same way, you share in his proclamation. When he went down and preached to those spirits in prison, you went with him. You were in him when he announced the victory over all demonic powers. So that victory then, by virtue of that, becomes your victory. Just like his death becomes your death, his resurrection becomes your resurrection, so his proclamation over evil spirits becomes yours. So in other words, now here you go, baptism, among many other things, is a form of spiritual warfare. And that is really, really important. If you've ever, and you know this, if you've ever done any ministry in any third world country, I mean, get rid of like, you know, U.S., Canada, Australia, Europe, New Zealand, all the Western, everywhere else in the world, right? If you've done ministry there, you know that they have a little bit different worldview. There's much more of a supernatural awareness of the supernatural realm. In those cultures, you can entertain the gospel. You can even accept some of its claims. But I remember what a pastor from India once told me, we don't count you saved until you're baptized. You're not considered a believer there. And, that's, and not until you're baptized are you, do you really experience any persecution. But once, you, once you're baptized, that's when it all breaks loose. That's when you get kicked out of your family. You do. If you're Muslim or Hindu or animist, you, you, go, you make your allegiance known to Jesus Christ and you're, you're, you're severed. That's when it starts. It starts when you're baptized. So in those cultures, like the one Peter was writing to, salvation and baptism, they are not the same, but they're so closely related one to the other that to have one is to have the other. Peter says in one breath, baptism saves you and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what saves you. Which one is it, Peter? It's the resurrection. But baptism was so closely associated with believing on Christ that he could, in essence, say baptism saves you. Again, I want to be clear. Being dunked under the water doesn't save you. But the idea of an unbaptized Christian in the New Testament or in the first few centuries of the church was absolutely unknown. Absolutely unknown. And that's a much more biblical view of baptism, of its high degree of importance, not that it saves, but that it has a very important place in the economy of God. And they believe that, and perhaps that's because that view came much out of a, a much more biblical and robust understanding of Christianity, not watered down so much by modernity. So when you are baptized, you're saying, I've believed in Christ and I've identified with him. I deserve the flood, but he took my place in the waters of judgment and has become the ark to save me from them. And because of that, and I recognize and I can see the greatness of that, I pledge loyalty loyalty to him. Like the believers Peter wrote to, I, you know, I may lose all my earthly status. I may be marginalized by culture. Uh, I may be shot at with the evil one's arrows of Ephesians 6. And I may even be tempted to doubt God's love because of my pledge of loyalty. I may be the enemy of this world, an alien in this life. Again, marginalized by culture. That's hard. It was hard for these believers. It was a struggle. But they remain loyal. Because even when you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, you can once again, once again, again and again, go back, as Peter says in verse 15 and set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and set your eyes on Him who suffered and died for you and then, and then, turn and remember your baptism. Remember that. Just like we remember what He has done for us through the cup and the bread. 
We remember what He has done for us, not by observing it over, but by just recalling in our own minds what He has done through the water in the ark. I will remember, under the water I went. I remember that. And as surely as those flood waters covered me, the judgment of God washed over Jesus Christ in my place. And as surely as I passed safely up through the water, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ has become my ark. And it'll carry me through this life into final salvation to that new heavens and new earth because Christ's victory over sin and over death has become my victory over sin and death. And Christ's victorious proclamation over all the powers of darkness has become my victory over all the powers of darkness. And because He crushed Satan's head at the cross, we have been given authority all of us believers have been given authority to overcome all the power of the evil one. Luke ten nineteen. Jesus said, I'm building my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And since we're a part of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And the gates of hell will not prevail against Grace Family Church. The seducing spirits and the doctrines of demons that will be so prevalent in the last days, which we are in, will not deceive us because we recognize our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and wicked spirits in heavenly places, those spirits over which Christ has already proclaimed victory, ultimate victory. So thanks be unto God who gives us the triumph the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore I say with Paul, as he said to the Corinthian believers, therefore my dear brothers and sisters, therefore dear Grace Family Church, stand firm. Amen. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. More is coming. Stand, you need to get solid now. Stand firm. One more thing about that ark. It only had one door. When God gave the design, He only had one door in it. It wasn't a back door. Only one door. If you're going to get in the ark, there's only one door you had to walk through. It's the same way with salvation. There's only one door John 10, here's what Jesus said. I am that door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. What do you mean? Forgiven all of our sins, given the gift of eternal life. We've all sinned. We're guilty of that before holy God. God is just and righteous. He must judge sin. But instead of judging us, he sent His Son to be our substitute who had no sin, was perfect. And all of the judgment that should come upon us, He put on Him. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, 1 Peter 3.18 says. To what? To bring you to God. It's the only way. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father through me. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. There's one door to salvation, that door is Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to know it. You have to believe it. You've got to receive that. I need forgiveness. I want to live forever with God. And then there's lots of things that God does for you in this life too. When you become His child, He takes care of you. He gives you peace and joy and purpose. But the main thing is, get it settled what happens when you die. That's where you start. What happens? Do I know for sure? I breathe my last. I'm standing in the presence of God. You ask a lot of people that question. They go, well, I hope so. Hope doesn't get you there. Not that kind of hope. That's just a wishful thinking, right? Jesus gets you there. Jesus gets you there. Well, I think I will be if I can only be good enough. Not by works, but by grace you're saved. If we had to work for this thing or be good enough to earn it, just call her quits right now. We're done. All of us fall short, way short. There, none is good. No, not one. The only goodness we have comes from God. There's a, I don't know why that is. A lot of people have a hard time getting over that, that bump. 
I've got a person in my life I've talked to a lot about this. Just can't get past the works thing. Every time I talk to this person, they tell me about another good thing they've done. And I know what they're saying. They're establishing their own righteousness through their own good deeds instead of believing on Christ's righteousness and His singular awesome deed of dying in our place on the cross and raising from the dead. And anytime someone leans on their own goodness, their own moral virtue, their own value, their own righteousness, what their essence is saying is, I don't need the cross. And nothing could be more tragic than that position. The whole world is looking for righteousness. You know that, right? Everything everybody does out there, they're all trying to justify themselves through whatever means they can. Because deep in the human heart, deep, deep, deep in, there is this need to be justified, to be accepted by yourself and by others. It's so deep within us. It's one of the marks of sin. Sin has left that, and it just cries for it. And so we do anything we can to justify ourselves. That's what the book of Galatians teaches is that all of humanity is looking for this justification. Ultimately, what we're really looking for is to be made right with our Creator. And that brings the healing and the peace. And everything we've ever been looking for, everything we've ever desired, everything we've ever wanted, is found in that relationship with God. And that relationship comes through Christ, who not only died on the cross to take the penalty of our sin, but He lived the life we could never live. And when we believe in him, he says, you get the merits of my perfectly lived life as your basis of relationship before God. That means God treats you just like you would his own son. And you become his son. You become his child. Jesus lived the life we could never live. He died the death that we could never die. He did it for us. He is a perfect substitute in life, the perfect substitute in death. And he says, all who call upon me shall be saved. It's a simple act of faith, to call on the Lord, to believe the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He rose again. You're here this morning. You've never done that. You need to. I'm assuming you're here for a reason. You're not at a bar. You're at a church, a church where the gospel's being preached because apparently there's some interest that God is working in you, that he's moving you. You're here for a reason, and this is it right here. All the stuff about knowing everything else, that's all second. This is it right now. So why not today make Christ your Savior? I'd like to lead you in a prayer to do that. Let's bow our heads just for a moment. Pray with me. I believe in Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose again from the dead. I am a child of God by faith in Christ. Not my own goodness, but Christ's goodness. From this moment forward, I will follow you, Lord. Amen.